0: that you're back. There must be some kind of secret sin you're trying to atone for by coming. I'm going to warn you, it won't work, but, but, but thanks for coming this way. Um, right, let's let's pray, and then we'll get on with the discussion of the sacraments. The Lord be with you. God, we ask that you would help us as we contemplate the ways in which you move and the ways in which you are spiritually and inwardly and outwardly present through the sacraments that you would guide us to a deeper understanding of the life you imagine and intend for all of us to live a life of grace and joy we ask this through christ our name our lord amen okay so last week yes sir i have a
1: question please
0: oh man oh yeah It's a great, great thing. Sometimes the bulletin will have the word transferred in parentheses. And really what that's letting you know is we're celebrating a feast day that's not naturally fallen on Sunday. So the real Ascension Day was three days ago. That would have been on Thursday. And the reason I wanted us to transfer it is because I didn't think most of you would come to church on Thursday at 8 (laughs) a.m. And because really it's this thing that if we don't transfer it, there's some significance that we would otherwise miss if we just stuck with the appointed readings, right? And, and part of what I think is important sequentially, and the priest does this sometimes, uh, and, and this is kind of what we get to do with the bishop's blessing, is transfer these these uh, festal days. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't celebrate the day, and if we done Easter um, seven instead of Pentecost, you'd have got another peekaboo story without the frame of this is what Jesus is doing is playing peekaboo with you, right? So in my head that made sense, and I just wanted to offer that to you. Sometimes we do that with saints' days we transfer them. Um, The other ones that get transferred, almost always Epiphany gets transferred because, you know, Epiphany is 12 days after Christmas, which rarely falls on a Sunday. But if we don't sort of celebrate the Epiphany, then in some ways we miss the opening frame for the whole season. Does that make sense? So we only put that word in there on it. I mean, I'm I'm grateful that you asked because now you know when you see but it it just lets you know that a lot of people don't even pay attention because they're like, well, whatever, you know. (laughs) At my last church, they used to send a a hard copy of the newsletter out. Um, This is before I got there. And they weren't sure if people were reading it or not. And I think they asked, let us know if you'd like a hard copy. Well, they didn't hear anything back. So the parish administrator bought 10 lottery tickets and randomly inserted them into the newsletter And when nobody called to complain or appreciate the lottery ticket, that was the last printing. I mean, it was just sort of done. I thought it was pretty clever, you know, a $10 investment in a survey, you know, I mean, that was it. Yeah, so so that happens sometimes. Um, By the way, at a forum or any other time, if you have a question like that, I sure would be grateful for it. Right? I do want to offer to you that um, there's really no liturgy for extinguishing the Paschal candle. I don't know if you've seen that before, but it does make sense, right? I mean, that's the whole bit is that the, the, the things are there to help us, to help us think through what's happening reality-wise. OK. Back to the sacraments. Prayer book says they are outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual graces. Okay, that's the definition. And uh, we talked the first week about Eucharist. Last week we talked about whether service might be sacramental. Um, I, I want to put a little bit more framing information and then, and, then, and then go forward if that's okay. I had this teacher, you know, I, I went to a Baptist college in, um, in North Carolina. And it was a really good Baptist school because it was a state Baptist school, so it didn't belong to the Southern Baptist Convention or the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. It belonged to the Baptist, um, the North Carolina Baptist Federation, right, which really extended through a bunch of different um, brands of Baptists. And what was interesting is, you know, if you know anything about the Baptist Church in the '80s, they, and in, 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 this is not me being political. In the '80s, they had an intentional purge. They had an an, an, an intentional takeover. By conservative fundamental fundamentalist evangelical Baptists who intentionally played the system, took over the the Southern Baptist um, politics, and then recreated the Southern Baptist Convention in their own in their own, to their own desires. So so. This is little known, but Southern Seminary in Louisville was superior to Harvard in the early 80s in terms of its academics, its publishing, and, and, and was really incredible. But in the mid-80s, students started to go and record their professors, and if the professors said something out of line with the Southern Baptist evangelical leadership agenda, they were fired, right? So academic freedom was completely gone, right? And those teachers who were fired or were uncomfortable came to my college. <laughs> this is quite interesting, right? So, so some of them were really quite good and well-read. And, 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 and one of them, who um, was just a middle-of-the-road guy, honestly, I think it's helpful to think through his definitions. He made me memorize these in a class I took, um, and I still remember them. He was really big on us having these scripts. There's three words... And this is a little bit different from the prayer book definition, but I just want to offer them to you from my memory because I think they're really helpful. He said, you know, theologically, there's three, three bits we can think about, signs, symbols, and sacraments. And they're not necessarily in ascending order, but they kind of are. Okay? A, a sign, and, and, and whether you're looking at a, a street sign, right? A sign simply points to a reality Deeper than itself. Points to a reality deeper than itself. So, you know, you look at a road sign and it points to reality different than itself, right? You live on Evergreen Terrace or you live on Barbuda Lane. It's deeper than just the sign. It actually, you know, represents something. Symbol, this is where he used the prayer book language. I mean, he might have read it, clever Baptist that he was, you know. I didn't know the thing even existed at the time. A symbol was an was an outward sign of an inward reality. Okay, now again, that prayer book uses that basic definition for sacrament. That's interesting, right? Outward sign of an inward reality. And look, you had to know the word sign in order to get the definition for symbol, right? Sacrament in the language he used was a means of participating in God without exhausting participation in God. That's deep theological speak. This is our job as clergy is to make things convoluted that shouldn't be. Uh, a means of participating in God without exhausting participation in God. So it's a way of actively not doing something God wants, but participating in who God is without using up what that means. Right, so that's open to mystery, right? I mean, this, is, this, this is interesting for me. It's a little bit interesting. And, and um, you know, there's two things I wanted to start out with today, and actually somebody had emailed me a question about last week, and, and I'll try to answer it. I'll do quite poorly. The, 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 the first bit is... Um, The church, capital C, by which I don't mean the Roman church or the Episcopal church, but just the church, right? The body of Christ in the world, decided a long time ago some really important bits about sacraments. And, and One decision came at the end of a huge controversy that started in the late 200s of our common era or AD. Around 298, the Roman emperor Diocletian, maybe you've heard of him before, started the first... So maybe you've heard of Nero. I just want to make sure you hear Nero is in 64, Diocletian 298. 298 was the first systemic persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. Nero did not do that. Whatever you've heard is wrong. Nero did not do that in 64. Diocletian did it for the first time in 298. And it was 10 years of intense persecution. That meant that the Roman jurisdiction was actively looking with spies for people who were Christian and putting them to death unless they would sacrifice toward the genius of the emperor. So people had a choice. Offer the sacrifice and be exonerated, refuse it and be killed. St. George, whose festal day we celebrated on April the 23rd, was the first such martyr In England, because he refused to make an offering to the genius of the emperor. Now, genius doesn't mean like Einstein. Genius, you're thinking like genie in a lamp. You're thinking basically the spiritual significance of the emperor because the emperor is the son of a god, right? So that was the litmus test, literally. Would you offer to the emperor or not? Well, during the Great Persecution, there were a number of Christians. I mean, they were bedrocks in their communities, who when they were given that opportunity for various reasons decided they would offer the sacrifice (laughs) these included priests and deacons and bishops they decided along lots of grounds that would make sense to you well you know if i'm still alive i can continue in ministry god wants us to live you know these sorts of bits well Again, a number of these people did it, and when the great persecution ended in, 10 years later, this was when Diocletian passed on the reign to some other emperors, um, Christianity was still kind of up in the air. Um, what happened to these people? And the biggest to-do happened in 312 when Constantine won the Battle of the Milvan Bridge and became the single emperor instead of one of four in the roman empire and then there was what's called the donatist controversy the donatists were this group who said if you went back on your religious ideals by offering a sacrifice to the emperor's genius you could go to church you could be in the community but you could not offer anybody a sacrament because your hands had been compromised i'm telling you the long-winded story right But this is the root of it. No priest, no bishop, no deacon who had made that sacrifice could serve in those capacities any longer. This was actually a huge schism in the church, and it sure makes sense when you think about it, right? Because don't you want your leaders to have some form of purity? Actually, Constantine himself took a position in this argument by 318, and he actively persecuted the Donatists. That means if you were a Donatist and you wouldn't give up that position, your life could be in jeopardy. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Helps explain how we got so many denominations from so long ago it wasn't just the reformations that did it it was coming at this point right now, really the 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 position of the church capital c that constantine represented and legalized was the sacrament works not because of the piety of the priest but because of the holiness of god that is to say a priest with dirty hands still offers you a holy eucharist to push on that hard, and, and I'm just going to pick the hardest thing, right? Not just to be sensational. A priest that has molested children who offers baptism is still giving the children a sacrament. Does that make sense? Of course, the answer for us is yes and no. Because if you knew the priest were doing that, there is no way you would take your children there, is there? I mean, you've got to think through that, Right? And and this is the bit about sacramental identity is that, again, it works not just in spite of the frailty of the clergy. It works because of the frailty of the clergy. I mean, that's another way to frame this. And that's what makes it sacramental. I mean, again, an outward sign of an inward and invisible and spiritual grace instead of a regular transaction. And what that also means is the sacrament works regardless of your belief of the sacrament working. (laughs) That's what makes a sacrament different from an ordinary transaction. That means if you are baptized and you don't believe anything, it worked anyway. (laughs) And then you've got to stop and think, well, well, how would it really work then? You know? I'm going to come back to this in a second. That would mean if you're confirmed because your parents wanted you to do it, it worked anyway. That would mean if you were married just because you were pregnant, it worked anyway. Do you you get what I'm saying? You can pick any hard reality you want, and that's the statement that the church, capital C, made about sacraments in 318. Now, that, that has to make sense practically, right? Because the truth is, If you knew my inner life, you may not want to receive communion from my hands. I just need to tell you that, right? Because, wow, uh, I'm a fallen and frail human being. I just am. However, we understand, right, that the priest isn't the one doing it. God is. And let's be honest. Many of us have come to the rail with high piety in mind. But we've also come to the rail thinking about what we'll be doing later this afternoon. And in, in either event, our, hopefully our trust, belief, is that God is mysteriously working within us something greater than ourselves, right? This is, this is tough, though, because it, it challenges, in some ways, our sense of justice. It invites us into God's sense of justice, and it invites us into being transformed whether we want it or not. This is why your priest has a very low threshold for the Eucharist. Let me tell you how low it is. (laughs) I asked about a year and a half ago a a conservative rabbi to come and celebrate a Seder with us. He was very upset that I would ask this. Um, It was terribly inappropriate. He said, if a a Muslim group asked you to go have communion at a mosque, what would you say? I'd say, what time do you want me to show up? Um, he thought I was joking. I was actually being serious. Now, I would, I told them, ask him why they wanted me to do that. But if they wanted it, that's between them and God, not between me and them. I know that's slightly jarring. Um, but that's the priest you have in front of you. <laughs> you may not want to have Eucharist from me anymore, now that I've said that. <laughs> but I think that's part of the bit we have to consider is, does this work through our intention or does this work through God's intention? Okay. And then, I think we have to consider a little bit, um, you know, the email I got is, what about service? And the email I got said, for baptism and Eucharist, et cetera, I get it. It works whether you want it to or not, simply because you've, you've sort of done this. You've gone up there. It works. But what about service? I mean, sometimes, aren't we serving ourselves when we do service and of course the answer is we're always serving ourselves I mean don't you think even when I think I'm serving other people with that martyr complex I grew up with you know look how well I'm serving everybody else. I'm 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 serving myself you know and there's this great definition that a saint is someone keenly aware of how they serve themselves in everything they do I, I like that <laughs> definition right as if there's something wrong with serving ourselves. It occurs to me that any time we do an act of service, isn't it part of God's economy, whether the people want it to be or not, or whether we appreciate it that way or not? I mean, when you give food to somebody that's hungry, even if you do it for a self-righteous reason, aren't you serving God? I mean, isn't God bigger than our intentions? (laughs) Can't we do something for completely the wrong reason and God can still accomplish God's purpose on earth anyway? I think that's the definition of a sacrament, right? Is that you could be the most selfish person in the world and when you share your money or your time or your interest, you're serving God whether you know it or not. Now, that's why I made that argument about service last week. And it's not in the prayer book as one of the big seven, but I want to tell you, I think it's a major sacrament. And I think plenty of people who have never been baptized or received the Eucharist participate in God by outward signs that are actually inward invisible graces because they serve each other. And I'm a big believer in that because Martin Luther King Jr. said, anyone can be great because anyone can serve which I think is what Jesus said. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to be the servant of all, right? And so whether we're serving each other with the Eucharist or baptism, or we're serving each other's food needs, or we're visiting somebody in the hospital who would otherwise be alone, I think we're participating in God, which is why I like that last definition I gave you, participation in God without exhausting what it means to participate in God, right? Yes, ma'am. I can. The easel is so. Yeah, you know. I don't even know why I use this. <laughs> As we grow up, I think I've decided the right word is um, this is like represents one of my many mental illnesses. I I feel like I need to write on this easel, and um, and I'm sorry I inflict that pain on you. These are the big seven you know, these are the big seven. Actually, those are the big two, and these are the lesser five, and then I think service is a question down on there. Okay? Now, I want to go back one second to what I said about it doesn't matter the personal piety of the priest. The sacrament relies on God, and I want to just give two other thoughts on that. And, and, and one is, and we can talk about ordination later, but I just want to forecast this. Ordination, holy orders, right, which which in our church uniquely, and this is unique, in the Episcopal Church, you can be ordained three separate times. There is no other religious tradition that will do that to you. You want to be a bishop in the Lutheran Church? You are ordained once. I was ordained one time in the Baptist Church to gospel ministry. In the Roman church, you're either ordained a deacon or a priest. Done. You're made a bishop later. That's not a separate ordination. Okay? In the Episcopal church, you're ordained a deacon. You either stop there or you're a transitional deacon. You're ordained a second time to the priesthood. You're ordained a third time if you're elected a bishop. Three separate ordinations. Those are concentric circles getting smaller and smaller, right? Fewer bishops than there are deacons. Fewer priests than deacons, right? The other thing that's unique to the Episcopal Church about ordination, and this goes back to Church with a capital C, we're the only tradition in which no one can defrock you. No bishop can take my ordination away from me. No bishop can do that. In the Roman church, in the Methodist church, in the Presbyterian church, in the Baptist church, that can be yanked. And this is actually where I think we have a stronger definition, logical following of that word sacrament than any other tradition. I can recount my vows, recant my vows. I can give them up. But a bishop can't take that away from me. A bishop can say, you may not serve Eucharist in my diocese. A bishop can do that but the bishop cannot take my priesthood away because we say it's eternal. That's interesting, isn't it? So if you ever hear that an Episcopal cleric was defrocked, wrong term used. The right term is inhibited. The bishop says, until I say so, you don't do sacraments in my diocese. If priest is no longer a priest, it's because they gave it up. An ecclesiastical court can try me for heresy and find me a heretic. Still, today, could do that. But they cannot take my priesthood away. Isn't that interesting? The reason I share that, right, is first of all, you've got to be really careful who you ordain. And <laughs> but second, that strong imagery really, I think, is, is akin to what I'm saying about what God's doing in sacraments. Which is making eternal changes that we spend the rest of our lives going into. I mean, I think that's the idea here. Let me pause and see if I provoked any questions or comments on that. What about atheists and agnostics? What about them? If they're baptized. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the great thing? Is that um, I mean, really, this is a good thing. That that the meaning of the sacrament transcends our ability to understand it or cooperate with it. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of sweet, isn't it? I'm having trouble. With it. Yeah, good. Uh-huh. It's vexing, isn't it? But, but that's, I think, the point of the sacrament is, and, and, and of course there's many ways to think about this, right? There's many ways to think about who should be given access to them. Because we, we want them to participate in a worthy manner. That's in the Eucharistic prayer, right? In a worthy manner. But I suppose we have to think through and this is probably heretical, I might get called into an ecclesiastical court for saying this, right? (laughs) If God's the actor in the sacrament, can a human intention ever violate God's? If your desire in taking the Eucharist is to profane it, if that's why you go to the rail is to profane it, will you be successful? I mean, really, this is a great question, isn't it? Will you be successful? So Nadine's comment, and the reason I'm saying this is because some people who have like sleep apnea or um, who are insomniacs listen to these things. I got an email from somebody who says, I actually listen to these things because we put them up on the website, you know, to help me sleep. And sometimes I can't hear the comments from the crowd and it wakes me up because I'm wondering what they said. So, so what, Nadine, what Nadine said for those at home who are having sleep difficulties is that, <laughs> that even if you are trying to actively resist or even countermand the grace of the sacrament, it sort of shows that you are fully involved in the process, right? And and again, I I like this turn of phrase from Brene Brown, that the sacraments don't work in spite of us, they work because of us. Even when our intention is negative. I mean, this is difficult because you're going to say, well, Mike, doesn't that mean that, that, that you'd marry anybody? Maybe we'd better pick which sacrament we want to talk about today. We've talked about the Eucharist. Um, is there one that's called? We're going to do this till we get them all done. I just want you to know. But is there anyone you're, you're just dying to, to, to think about today? Let's talk about marriage. Woo, and I'm going to tell you, this is going to be a barn burner. And I should out myself and be really bad. Yes, ma'am. Well, and I'm so glad you said this, because I think what I, the reason I wanted to tell you this business about sacrament from my Baptist college, a means of participating in God without exhausting participation of God, we've got to really stop before we think about any one of these and say, does God need you to have the Eucharist? Or is the answer, we need to have the Eucharist? Are the sacraments for God or are they for us? And and I've got, you're hearing me say a couple of things. High sacramentality, God's intentions always prevail over ours. But then the question is, who are they for? Did God create us for the Sabbath or did God create the Sabbath for us? Now, I grew up in a church called the Independent Christian Church, which is like the Church of Christ with a piano, so we were liberal. <laughs> we were liberal, and in that church, if you weren't baptized, you went to hell when you died. So I grew believing that. But then I think the question is: If God needs somebody to put water in my head, God's awfully weak, don't you think? Isn't that weak in God to need that? Now I think God's much bigger than that. The question is, who needs the darn water? We do. God doesn't need that water. Sometimes I think we get this bit backward, right? Do we really? I'm going to tell you, yes, we really need the water. And I'll talk about why when we get to baptism. We really do need that. And God is able to work through our need to give us what we need, right? Um... But I told you this two weeks ago. I've gone to churches that say Holy Communion is open to baptized Christians of every denomination. And and I read these books written by Episcopal theologians that say God is manifest to us in our baptism. But you know, I'm sorry, friends. If you're Muslim, don't you think God is also manifest to you? I mean, if God isn't, God is awfully weak, don't you think? Either God is everywhere or God isn't. Don't we say God's omnipresent all places at all times at the same time? So to say that somebody who's Hindu or Muslim doesn't understand God, I mean, that doesn't even make sense, does it? I mean, you didn't ask to be born Christian, did you? I'm I'm glad I am because it's my native language. It's all that I know. And having studied the other world religions, I'm not going to convert because they're not my native tongue. I'm not going to. But I didn't deserve this. I didn't deserve to be born American. I didn't ask God before I was born, please put me in America. Do you, do, do you know what I mean? We just got to think through this honestly a little bit, you know. I mean, God would be rather unfair to, put, to send people in equatorial New Guinea to hell because they weren't Christian. And, and I do think this is bound up in the sacraments, which is why I'm not mentioning it, you know? Okay, better talk about marriage, though. <laughs> yeah. You know, the book says something really interesting, and, and, and there's, these, there's these roles. In, in, in the marriage rite, you can either be the officiant of the marriage, or you can be the celebrant. <laughs> Those are my roles. I can be one or the other. And there's a lot of people that argue, you know, we should be the, something else, the presider. But, you know, I actually think the celebrant is probably the most exciting bit, right? We're celebrating the invisible grace that's present in the relationship. And that's why we're saying the church blesses that, that you living into the vows is sacramental. Right. Now, now, you know, the theology of marriage is really, really quite old. And, and actually, we do it very differently than the Bible suggests we do it. OK, so 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 let me walk you through a little bit what's biblical and what's changed and how we do it. And then and then we'll talk about grace and I'll probably leave you feeling disgusted at the end. OK, <laughs> it's the tall order for the day. All right. If you read Genesis chapter one. God created them male and female, and for this reason, do you know how it reads? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with the woman, and they will be one flesh. Who leaves? The man. (laughs) You know any men that leave their father and mother? Or is it the woman that leaves hers? So I just want to say we've inverted the pattern. Actually, back in ancient biblical Israel, there used to be two houses in a family compound. One was occupied by men and one was occupied by women. So you're thinking of a patriarchy and a matriarchy. This is, this is accurate, by the way. Two houses in a family compound. Right? And way back when, before there was a monarchy, lots of uh, archaeological research is, is coming to bear on this. You can read Discovering Eve or Rediscovering Eve. These are books by a Harvard, um, Harvard religion professor that basically says before King Saul, before there was a monarchy, people lived in this way. And what happened eventually is that men did not necessarily rule over women, until there was a monarchy, instead there were separate roles. So the the women made the bread five and a half hours a day doing the daily grind, two pounds of bread each day was ninety percent of their nutrition, and the men cultivated the fields. And those weren't considered as inferior or hierarchical tasks, they were just consigned to men and women. right, there's there's a lot of evidence for this. part of what women did, actually, is they completely controlled the family structure and unity. So it was the mother who made the blessing on the marriage, not the father. And that initially a groom might come and live in the mother's house. (laughs) I know you may be thinking, this is really bizarre, but come into you rediscovering Eve if you're interested, right? And that somehow, as the monarchy got formed, that, that actually women ended up getting a little bit more subjugated in the history so women were, were they stayed the roles stayed the same but the roles were hierarchicalized that the bread making was less important than the grain growing right and that making matches was women's work Now, now, now think through what you know about the book of Genesis who controls which son gets the blessing in the book of Genesis the father or the mother So, well, tricked or controlled, either way, right? So let's think through it. Abraham wants to bless Ishmael. I'm not being bold in telling you that. Sarah picks Isaac. Isaac wants to bless Esau. Rebecca picks Jacob. Uh, Now, there's no mom to control the blessing at the end of Jacob's life, although Rachel... Had already fixed while she was alive that it would be her children, not the others. You just sort of think through that. Moses is not the oldest child in the family, Aaron is. <laughs> and, and, and Moses is the chosen leader, right? Argument maybe mom made that. Okay, why am I telling you all this? It, it's going to be important later. Just lodge in your head, right? The man's supposed to leave his parents. And we don't do it that way. So it's important to say we're already not following the Bible. You may say, that's a minor point, Mike. It's a major point if you're a biblical literalist. It's a major point. Because if you're a biblical literalist and you break the Bible at one point, you've broken the whole thing. The reason I bring this up is not because you are, but because the world is full of these people, myself included, right, who like to think that we are doing exactly what the Bible says when actually we're picking and choosing. Because the Bible allows you to stone your children if they're rebellious of you, right? I don't know. (laughs) I sure know people who would like to do it, but I don't know anybody that does that in the middle of rebellious children. Do you know why they say, we don't do that anymore, people will pick on other bits like well if you're divorced you can't be an elder in the church why do you get to pick (laughs) what you're going to do and what you're not going to do it's important to raise that from the beginning right this would mean biblically if we were to follow this that a man should change his last name to the woman's anybody do that when i went home and suggested to my parents that my wife and I might are considering changing our last names together to a new one. It was like I rang the death gong, you know, I and mean, it was so bad. We, we weren't going to hyphenate because that's just weird. Whose name comes first, whose comes second, and then it won't even fit on a standardized test form when it's that. We just weren't going to do that. So my parents, oddly enough, were much more excited about us just keeping our own names than us changing one together. You know, we tried to explain it, but you know, culturally there's just no explaining that bit away. Right? We just bought hook, line, and sinker that if the woman doesn't change her last name, she's rebellious. You know, this is just sort of what we've done. Right? Maybe not in your families, but in mine, this is what we've done. Okay? Again, I want to tell you, if you go biblical literally, it would be the other way around. The other bit that we don't always get is that in the Hebrew Bible, there weren't weddings like we have now. The way it worked, and if, if you, you doubt me on this, you can read Leviticus or Deuteronomy. The way it works, and I, sorry, this is going to sound unsavory, but this is how it works. If a man has sex with a virgin, he pays her father the bride price, and they're married. Now, if the man doesn't want to marry her, he still has to pay for her, and the dad can keep her. And, and marriage in the Hebrew Bible is a transaction, because women ended up becoming chattel. They belonged to their father. And the father, this is again after the hierarchy had shifted, right, and they were no longer equal. The father is sort of above the whole compound. The father had invested resources on women who could not hold property or really own, earn income or be a judge at the gate. That's called a declining investment in the chattel world. And so having invested, a husband had to recompensate the father for having raised the girl. Now, don't think about dowries, right? A woman did not pay a man to get married. It worked the other way, paid the bride price. So, So when you hear about Joseph and Mary, right, again, Joseph paid the price for Mary a year before the wedding. That's called betrothal. The wedding couldn't be consummated for a year because they were working out the contract. But Joseph had already paid he intended to divorce her quietly, which would mean he'd say to the dad, you keep the money and the girl, I'm out. This would have been a considerable economic loss for Joseph because he's paying the father for having raised her from infant to the age of however old she was. 12, 15, we don't know. In, in the Bible, you become a man at 13, you become a, girl at, a woman at 12. So Mary could have been 12, could have been 40. I mean, we, 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 we don't know right? Um, and that's a bit what marriage looked like. Now, by the time of Jesus, there had evolved, and, and before Jesus, right? But, but by the time of Jesus, there had evolved a, a wedding ceremony that amounted to, you'd paid the bride price, there was a celebration, every, you went all the way through town, through all the little corridors. Some of the towns were only a square block, right? So not a lot of walking. And then you sort of went outside the new addition to the home, which by the time of Jesus was added onto the father's house not the mother's so so, so 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 bits change they did not at that time step on a glass they did not get married under a chuppah right the bible will tell you why there are veils does anybody know why brides wear veils oh really come on now because in the story of goes and falls in love with one of laban's daughters named rachel her name means sheep she has a sister named Leah, which means heifer. So Jacob prefers the lamb to the heifer and says to Laban, I want to marry Rachel. He says, work seven years and you can marry Rachel. On the wedding night, Laban, who is very, very tricky, puts a veil on Leah. Jacob gets very drunk on the wedding night and doesn't realize he's married the wrong woman. <laughs> in the morning, he wakes up in the marriage chamber and behold, uh, that's the word, behold, it could also be translated like bam or, or boom shakalaka, <laughs> there is Leah. And he says, what have you done to me? And he says, ah, you know, we marry the oldest daughter first. Work seven more years and you can have Rachel, right? So, 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 so theoretically, that's the origin of the veil, right? <laughs> and this is why you part the veil in the ceremony to make sure you're marrying the correct daughter. <laughs> I'm not making this up, by the way, right? Um, So so this is the bit. And of course, Jesus celebrates a wedding that really probably lasted 10 days, not just like 10 minutes, right? The modern wedding ceremony, if you don't have about 10 minutes, just just depending on the sermon. Now, I've been to some that were an hour and a half. And let me tell you, those did not have a celebrant. Those had a presider. Because nothing is fun after an hour, right? I mean, this celebration's over. Okay, so anyway, back then at at Jesus' Jesus' time in Cana, they'd have this 10-day wedding and the wine gave out like on the second day and there's gonna be eight dry days. No, no, no. This is where Jesus does his miracle. I don't know that I've told you anything interesting except that's a little bit how it goes historically. Um, a lot of the, the stuff that we do today, honestly, y- y- you know this if you think about it, actually is reminiscent of all the stuff I just told you. Why does the father give the daughter away? Because the daughter is property that belongs to the father. This is why the groom's father doesn't give the groom away. He doesn't own the groom. The daughters are the property. The sons are, not, are the heirs. You may say, It's yucky Mike, I've never thought of it that way. That's why we do it. Uh, (laughs) Think about dress color. In this country, it's a big deal that a bride wears a white dress, right? Particularly when my parents got married, I remember, and, 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 and I just come from, from real low stock. <laughs> because at the wedding, one of my dad's aunts went to my mom and grabbed her in the belly to see if she was already pregnant. I mean, this is delightful, isn't it, right? Um, to see whether she should have been wearing that white dress. I mean, these are some of the things that we do. Interestingly enough, in Germany, the, the average color for a dress is scarlet. <laughs> Or white trimmed with red. Now, we all know what that would mean in the United States. We read the scarlet letter, didn't we, in high school. That would be awful, right? And white has become this big deal. But, but again, of course, it's that symbol of purity of her father's property because it would look bad to her dad, not to herself. Now, I know we're evolving and we just do the tradition because we do it, but again, these are, these are part of the roots of it. Is that okay that I'm saying this That's right, you weren't allowed. And, and particularly in some towns where it was known that the woman shouldn't be wearing white, she did not. They would wear ivory. ivory. <laughs> uh huh, And the town wouldn't allow it, right? I mean, that's the interesting bit. You weren't allowed to wear the uniform that you weren't allowed to wear, right? Um, Very fair, right? And yet, this is only 200 years old. We think it's been going on forever. Now, I will tell you, interestingly enough, you you can go to modern-day Iran and the bride wears a white dress. But like I said, you can go to Germany and the bride wears a scarlet one sometimes, right? So part of this is not always cross-cultural, even though we don't don't figure that. Okay, I've talked about custom. Maybe it's important to talk about what's actually sacramental about this. Is that okay? And, 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 I, and, I, and I probably, if you're listening at home, you probably wish you'd listen to a different track. You know, this might even be hard to sleep to. Um, but but um, I want to start also by saying what's changed. Okay. There are two primary reasons for marriage in the Protestant faith. There's only one in the Roman faith. Okay. Does anybody know the reason for marriage in the Roman faith? procreation of children. That's the only reason to get married if you're Roman Catholic. Now, you could be completely infertile, and that's known to all parties before, and the Roman Church will marry you because God can work a miracle. Okay? This is the reason, however, in the Roman Church, you can't intentionally take birth control. We know plenty of Catholic folks that do it, but it's naughty. Right. In fact, the priest knows that they can they can excommunicate you, for doing this. This is this is a mortal sin if you're Catholic, N- not a regular and a mortal one because you are actively resisting the reason for which marriage was intended by taking birth control or using an you know an IED or whatever else you're, you're you're doing. Okay. In the Protestant faith, this came around in the in the Anglican Reformation. The other reason for marriage, do you know? procreation of children, unity. No, not property, unity. Husband and wife are joined, not just for children, but to be unified, which goes back to that biblical bit I told you, the two will be knit together and they'll be made one flesh. It's very rabbinic. Spend a time, uh, just give me three minutes to explain how this is rabbinic. Um, You know, the very first human being was considered in the, in the rabbinic order, you know, and you, this has got to be Genesis 2, not Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, God makes the first human being out of clay and breathes uh, life into the body and becomes alive, and that's called the human being. Not, not Adam, called the human being. Okay? And God looks at the human being and says, It's not good for the human being to be alone, so I'll make a helper. And you know the first thing God makes for the human being? Yeah. All the animals. So God says, it's not good for you to be alone. I know, I'll make the saber-toothed tiger. Um, nah, that's not going to work. <laughs> I'll, I'll make the great white shark. No. I mean, it's almost, it's almost comical to read that God makes the animals thinking a suitable partner will be found for the human being. And After making all the animals, do you know who names the animals, by the way? The human being does. It's important because in the Bible, when you give someone a name, you have authority over them, which is part of what the story is saying. The human being has authority over the animals, right? Um, God looks and says, nah, none of those are going to work. So what does God do? God puts the human being, it's important, this is not time out a man yet, the human being into a deep sleep and removes from the human being, okay. I know you'd say that. You'd say that. So yeah. Um, rib is the weakest translation of that word. God removes part of the side of the human being. Now why does that matter? Because you've got lots of ribs and we know you can live without one. Depending on the scoop out of your side though, now you're talking about things like kidneys and liver and gallbladder and pancreas. Those things are very difficult to live without. And and actually I think what's helpful to know is that in Genesis 2 the image really is that the human being is one human being and God has carved the human into two bits. To the point this is very old the original rabbis I mean the original there's no original rabbis some rabbinic midrash on this says the first human being was a hermaphrodite and that when God split the human being that's when division of genders actually happened So the rabbis will tell you that if God had everything complete and separated it, that marriage is when you put the image of God back together. This is lovely, isn't it? The other thing the rabbis tell you later is that the first thing the human beings, the man and the woman, they don't have names yet. They don't have names. Man and woman. Woman just means from the man, because the man described the human being, and the woman came out of that, right? not secondary in status, equal in status, separate, the first thing they realize when they eat the fruit off the tree of knowledge is what? They're naked. Have you read the story? They eat the fruit, and the first thing they realize is that they're naked, and they're immediately ashamed, and they cover up. And the rabbis say in marriage is when two people come together naked again, but unashamed. That's kind of a lovely theology, isn't it? Naked and unashamed, putting the image of God back together. Well, I actually think those are really good ways to think about what happens in the sacrament of marriage. And I don't mean that nakedness is limited to our bodies, but because we're sacramental and physical people, I do think our bodies are an important way to test the intimacy of our relationship. And quite honestly, in in marriage particularly, um, I think what's sacramental is the insecurities we have about our bodies, and we all have them, right, are held gently by our partner instead of pushed on. That's sacramental for me, sacramental for me, right? If my insecurities had been pushed on by my partner, I would be missing, I'm I'm telling you, I would be missing out on sacramentality in that area of our relationship. Consider whether that's true for you but I'm also positive that there are parts of my soul that I have been very afraid of and that I have kept very well concealed and covered that in my marriage I ought to be able to unadorn and that those fears and sensitivities and tragedies have been cradled by my partner and not pushed on and I would tell you that's the most sacramental part about my marriage. Consider if that's true for you. I would tell you, because I'm a Protestant, not a Roman Catholic, that if I didn't have that relationship, I don't know how I could ever imagine having and raising children to love themselves and love other people. So as a good Protestant, I'm gonna tell you unity ought to precede procreation I think that's right, anyway. Would you want to have children? Of course, this happens sometimes, but would you want to have children with somebody who beats you up in your most vulnerable spots? It happens to us. It does. And sometimes we do, but do, do you know what I mean? If we step back from the situation, right? Because what will happen to our children? They will likely also get beat. This is important stuff, right? And this, I think, is really, really interesting, is to think about how is it that we celebrate and make a relationship between a couple sacramental and what makes marriage different from cohabitation and what makes marriage different from a boyfriend and girlfriend and who... Is the marriage right for? And all of this, I think, is, is, is really, really important. And I'm going to step back, because this is a bad ordination. You know, what's great about the Episcopal Church is I can marry any couple I want. <laughs> and I can decline marriage to any couple I want. This has problems. Because in the 1960s, a white man and a black woman would come in, and a priest could say, get out of my office right now, categorically. That's happened, by the way. Take your pick, right? A Jewish man could come in with a Christian lady. priest could say, not in my church. And by the way, that's our polity. There are other priests in this congregation retired, Ben Skiles being one, Craig Morgan being another, right? They could be very excited to celebrate a wedding that I'm not excited about. Guess what? It will never happen in this church because <laughs> that's the power of the rector. The rector decides who gets married in the church. The bishop cannot make me marry somebody in this church that I don't want to marry. Did you know all this stuff? I mean, I know it's like arcane, right? But this is sort of how it goes. you got the power. <laughs> well... And this is the bit you maybe should have thought through before you gave it to me. <laughs> because oddly enough, as rectors, and we'll talk about this ordination later, you know, we're tenured. Southern Baptist Church, they didn't like your sermon. You'd be gone that day. You were living in a parsonage. They could change the locks. That, you, you look at me like I'm crazy. I'm telling you the gospel truth. You had to be real careful what you said. Because they didn't like it, you're gone. This is why they invented the tenure system, you see. They invented it so I'd have a free pulpit, right? But you know, as with other agencies, tenure can be really difficult when someone's not playing nice. (laughs) Only way you can remove a rector is if they steal your money or if they have sexual indiscretion with somebody if i 'm a heretic, you have to have an ecclesiastical court. The, the tricky way is you just cut their salary till they want to leave right? I mean that 's the tricky way right which the best you gets to do. The reason i 'm telling you this though is because this is the rules of marriage and you know this is really interesting. I just want to make sure you know because this is actually one of the more controversial ones politically, right In the diocese of Texas, pre clergy priests really can marry any adult couple. They choose to. What does that mean? That means same-sex couples can be married by clergy at their discretion. Uh, there's a provision on that, I'll tell you in a bit, but it's up to the priest, not to the parish. And this is really helpful to think about, right, how we do weddings. I did a wedding in this church about a month ago. How many of you were there? Two, right? They were the parents of the groom, right? <laughs> it's interesting. There was a wedding done here in December that none of you were at. I just, none of you were there, right? Um, And why weren't you there? It wasn't on a Sunday morning and you didn't know the family. So of course you weren't invited. Could you have shown up? I mean, it's your church. I guess I've been rather rude of you though, don't you think, right? I mean, weddings are these interesting bits, right? Where they're kind of public, but they're kind of not public, right? I've, I've known of one couple in my life that got married Sunday morning at 10.30 at the regular worship service. Um, I would never do that. I mean, I think that's what's neat is that it doesn't have to be my thing for them to do it, you know. But I've only known one couple that did that, you know. Um, so, so I think what's important is now that I've told you about some of the rules and how we get to do it, is is to think through why and how and what the stuff ought to mean, right? i already told you unity and procreation are the classical bits. I've told you I think unity, and then and then really I think when we think about sacramentality, what's important in a couple. I'm just gonna be bad and tell you that what, it, what you have to do to get married with me here or in the parking lot or at Armand Bayou wherever you wanna get married. You have to wanna to get married <laughs> and you have to do premarital counseling. Um, people who aren't willing to do premarital counseling or they don't have the time for it can probably find someone else who will do the marriage. Honestly, they probably can. And the reason I won't do it is because my role is celebrant and how can I celebrate a relationship that I don't know anything about? It doesn't mean that they don't have a sacramental unity. It just means if I don't know it, how can I celebrate it, right? I don't have to know them well, but it's really important that I know something about them, or I'm gonna be really inauthentic. You ever been to a cold, I mean a completely cold wedding where the cleric didn't know anything about the people and it was obvious, anybody ever been to one of those? It's, it's a little icy, honestly. It just, it just feels like, like where's the warmth that we were hoping for in the day, you know? Um, the reason I do that, of course, is because in, in four quick, easy sessions, usually I'm able to ascertain whether or not I think there's some hope that this relationship's going to work. Now, 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 we all know folks who with the best intention, life happened and it didn't work anymore. We know that right? We, we know those people, we're related to those people, we might be those people, right? But, but part of, I think, what's sacramental about unity is that bit we make in the ceremony called vows, right? And, and a vow is much stronger than a promise. It's like the pinky swear, right? The pinky swear where we basically say, um, you know, our relationship has been this and this and this. That's what it's been. But what's sacramental is we're committed to each other not knowing where we're even going to be, and we're committed to God deepening our unity in ways we don't even understand, and we're committed to pursuing that with God, right? I mean, that's what's interesting about the sacrament. It doesn't just celebrate the past. It celebrates the future, which we don't even know yet, as long as we live in to the vows, and that's where I think it's a little bit different, right, from, from, a, from, from a live-in or from, you know, um, a common-law marriage, right, is that this, we're sort of saying in the presence of God, we, we believe God's able to continue to deepen and grow and do this work in us. Are there people that get married who come to me? You know, I just tell them when, when they come to me. The first question I ask them is, you know, well, why do you want to get married, period? How'd you meet? Why do you want to get married in the church? would mean a lot to our parents. That's not a disqualifier for me. Why would it be a disqualifier if sacraments are about what God does? I, I am just asking you to think through this, not because I'm right. I'm, I'm putting myself out there and you can criticize me um, because this is part of the deal about sacraments, right? I have friends that require their people to be baptized to get married, who require their people to go through marriage classes to get married. Now, now, I do require counseling. I've told you that. It's really important for me. But if we make somebody get baptized to get married, I mean, what message are we sending them? Yeah, I'll do that if you do all this stuff you're not interested in. Because God wants you to do a bunch of stuff you're not interested in. <laughs> but you're trying to have a both ways. Of course I am. Because You got it. That's what I believe about baptism. But remember, the reason I make and do counseling is so that I can actually authentically celebrate the relationship. Otherwise, I'd say I'll just do it on the spot, right? But but, but I do need to be able to celebrate it because the sacrament is not just for the couple. In fact, reflecting on my own wedding day, I'm pretty sure it was as much about everybody there as it was about us. And you know this to be true, you married folks, because after that day, your identity changed. Before that day, you were Mike and Rebecca, or you were, you know, uh, Jan and Larry. And after that day, you were husband and wife. And that's a nomenclature change that is irrevocable. Even if you get divorced, your identity changed the day you had the right. Does that make sense what I'm saying? If you've had a child, you know that to be true. I mean, golly, the first three or four years, I thought, I'm a babysitter. Like, I don't know why you're calling me dad. I'm not a dad. Um, Growing into that new name and position took, I'm not sure I'm still there, actually. I mean, it's a kind of an awesome and holy responsibility, right? And the first time after you were married and said, this is my wife, was really like a little funny, right? Like, this is my wife. This is my husband, right? Because we have to grow into a new identity. I mean, that's, that's, that's what sacraments do is they invite us to grow into a new identity, whether it's baptism or confirmation or just taking the Eucharist, right? A, a, a new identity being God's table. I'm probably like slurring this and, and, and boring you. Um, I'm a little worried that I am. <laughs> um, well, and, and I, think, I think part of this, then just requires a lot of common sense and stepping back from us, back, back a little bit, you know? I mean, I, I, I think when we consider marriage, which, which actually has a lot of cultural pressures, much of which is very good, right? It's good to return to what it is that marriages are for, right? I mean, I, have, I do have intimate friendships. I have friendships with women and men who are not my spouse, in which I feel pretty good sharing my vulnerability, right? I I don't think I have relationships in which I feel better sharing my vulnerability than with my wife. I'm pretty sure I don't, right? I I don't know that, um, you know, it's like it has to be. I mean, I think there's this other thing that many of us know, and this kind of returning to sacramentality about the future, you know, anybody heard about the seven-year itch? (laughs) Anybody had the seven-year itch before? i had it at 10 years I, I don't know who was thinking seven um you're, you're 10 there's a lot of itching going on not because i was bored in the relationship but life was just really different you know and um golly you know um having survived year 10 survival's the best word um golly the marriage really is a lot better in most ways than it ever was Um, Because, I think this is is a bit, just statistically, you know, most people get divorced either two years or seven to ten down the road. I'm pretty sure they do it after two years because they stop feeling romantically, emotionally attracted. And they haven't cultivated anything else. You think about this, right? What's the first day you looked over at your spouse and thought, oh... (laughs) <laughs> I just, I'm just not feeling it today. <laughs> it's a day to be celebrated if you outlived it, right? Because we know that love isn't just based on our feeling, it's based on our commitment. Right. And, and, and I've said this in a sermon before, I went to premarital counseling, I better stop here and we'll, we'll pick up next week. I, I, went, I went to premarital counseling with my wife and, and, and the premarital counselor said, well, what's your number one image of what happens in marriage? And, and me, you know, being this, you know, sweet, poetic person, I said, you know, it's a mystical union of two bodies into one flesh. My wife said, Contract. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known we were headed toward the attorney route then. I, I felt very romantically deflated. I just want to let you, think, contract? Her second word? Commitment. <laughs> but you know, of course, right, the two are necessarily important because with only commitment and without, without really that union piece, well, it's like living in a, in a barracks. Right, You're very committed to following rules without necessarily having the unity that transcends it. Um, without the commitment, you got two years, right? And if you make it seven, it's because it's you thought you weren't allowed to get divorced, right? And that's why you stayed on. Um, well, okay, on that, on that teasing bit, I guess we'll talk about marriage. Not next week, we'll have breakfast. In two weeks, we'll talk about marriage some more, because I didn't think we covered it all. Is that okay?